right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker, and this week I want to continue on with my Shroud solo series and uh, move on to the next mechanism um, to try to explain the uh, Shroud of Turin and give an assessment of that. Just before I get into that, though, I do have a few RSM announcements that I want to make. Um, so the first is, uh, in terms of special guests... So next week, we do have it um, uh, established. Michelle Chinowith is going to be coming on the show. She has a new book, uh, The Wiseman, and we're going to be talking to her about that, as well as other issues related to abortion and the, the recent Roe v. Wade case and that sort of thing, and what's going on with the Supreme Court there. Um, but yeah, essentially, Michelle, um, she's a recognized author. She writes a lot of books. Her kind of ministry is focused on uh, converting, writing fiction stories based on biblical narratives um, and that sort of thing. So, for example, this this book, uh, The Wise Men, um, is based on King Solomon and then adopting that and using lessons from that, to applying that to the abortion debate and that sort of thing. So we'll get into that next week. Another thing that I just wanted to mention. So uh, it, I came to my attention that... Um, some people might have misunderstood. I did a review a couple weeks ago of uh, my fellow Christian brother and, and friend, Caleb Jackson, who made a resurrection video as an atheist. So he put on his atheist cap and pretended to make the, athe the atheist case against the resurrection of Jesus. There was one part, uh, I think it was in part one, where he was talking about as a prior probability factor, he thinks that it can be argued Jesus was not a good or moral teacher. And he provides, you can see up on your YouTube screens there, uh, the slide that he's used. You know, so for example, he points to, well, Jesus didn't outright explicitly condemn slavery, so he's a bad guy. Or, you know, oh, he was so mean because he whipped, you know, he, he turned the tables over in the temple when the... Uh, the thieves were turning it into a den of thieves and ripping people, innocent people off and perverting God's God's house. And I was quite polemical at that part, um, and rightly so, I think. Um, and I'll explain in a moment. But um, some of you, there, there might have been a misunderstanding. So I just want to clarify this. So when I was kind of mocking or using polemics against the atheists and skeptics claim here, um, you know, and I was trying to say like, oh, you know, you just think Jesus is this lovey-dovey, hippy-dippy. I was kind of mocking that. So I just want to clarify. So in the first place, I am not mocking Jesus of the Bible at all. You know, you know, turn the other cheek and that this is all in the Bible as well. This is part of the Jesus that I love. This is the fullness and complete picture of who Jesus is. He is loving. He is gentle. He is merciful. He is compassionate. And these are amazing properties or qualities and characteristics of our Lord and Savior. So uh, in no way was I mocking that. What I was mocking is the pick and choose um, Christians and atheists that just have this distorted picture or one-sided picture uh, based on an incomplete Jesus. You know, oh, I'll, I like the lovey-dovey verses, so I'm just going to pick those. And or on the other side, it works on the other side too, right? No, it, Jesus also has judgment, hellfire. He engages in tough love and he, he rebukes people for edifying purposes and stuff like that. So there's both sides of the coin. And that was my point. We have to worship the complete Jesus and and relish and, and ascribe the worth that he deserves. It's good that he didn't condemn slavery. That would have been downright evil. More souls would have been condemned to hell if he did. 
at that time and place. Um, more people would have been harmed in earthly ways as well. I mean, we know it's a historically proven fact that slavery, what given the circumstances in the ancient Roman Empire, if you just all of a sudden yanked that out, that would cause immense harm. And that was proven, you know, in the third century, Caracalla, for example, not just the slave, he didn't, he didn't do it with slaves, but he f said all the freedmen will become uh, Roman citizens. Disastrous. He ruined the economy. That's, uh, this is the emperor that spurred on the great crisis of the third century where the Roman Empire almost collapsed. So th that's the point that I'm trying to say is we have to have a complete picture of Jesus and not just judge him based on incomplete information like atheists and skeptics do. And so, yeah, it, it does, uh, the polemics came up because, yeah, I'm offended when people just want to pick and choose the bits about Jesus they accept and ignore the other bits. No, we are commanded to never be ashamed of Jesus in any way of his words. We take the fullness of what he said and did in the Gospels as moral perfection. And that's a guide of how we ought to live our lives as well. So that was the main point that I was trying to say there is, look, if you're an atheist or skeptic, don't be presumptuous. Don't engage in judgment on the things you don't like based on a superficial, glib, or uh, unnuanced or insincere attempt to just pour scorn on Jesus. That infuriates me. That offends me because that's pure evil. Um, likewise, Christians... Um, if you're just like the Rainbow Peter type that just, oh, well, I like the lovey-dovey verses, but I don't like the verses where Jesus curses a fig tree or talks about hellfire and judgment, so I'm just going to pretend he never said that and ignore that, that's pure evil as well. And that, that deserves mockery and polemics, I think, because we ought to never be ashamed of anything our, our Jesus said or did. I mean, if you truly love God, you accept him for who he is in all of his fullness. Um, so that was the point there. That was the point. I'm not mocking the aspects of Jesus where he's loving, compassionate. No, that's the greatest part. That's the amazing part. Uh, that That's the part, you know, we love because he loved us first and, and that sort of thing. But by the same token, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, I want the lovey. I want the love stuff, but I don't want the harsh stuff. By the same token, it's just as bad. If you're a Christian and you say, well, I like the harsh stuff. It gives me an excuse to judge people or bash people and I'm going to ignore the love stuff. That's just as bad. It's got to be balanced. We got to have this full picture in when we're presenting the gospel message and presenting Jesus to people. So that was the point I was trying to make there. Okay, um, final a final announcement before we get into the Shroud solo show here. Um Bob Rucker actually reached out to me by email and he has an amazing, on his YouTube channel, he doesn't need me to market, for, market it for him because he's got way higher numbers than I, I get on my channel, but um, it's something about 8,500 8, views so far, 333 likes. So it, his video is doing great, but I just want to advertise it because there's great information here. It's He did a video called The Hypothesis to Explain the Main Mysteries of the Shroud of Turin. This was just posted. It's it's less than an hour long um, and it's just jam-packed with, with great information. So I highly recommend you guys, uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the blog, but uh, yeah, check it out and watch Bob's video. You, you know him from the Shroud Wars on my channel. He's always got great, well-researched, well-organized information. So I can't recommend that high enough. Please, please watch and support uh, Bob Rucker's um, video there that you're seeing the picture in the in the YouTube screen. 
All right, uh, so that should do it in terms of announcements. Um, yeah, awesome. With that said, let's move straight into um, our Shroud Solo series for today. Okay, so as I mentioned in the beginning, today we're going to be moving on to the next umbrella category of mechanism. And this is uh, mechanisms related to electrostatic, uh, or sorry, hypotheses related to the electrostatic mechanisms using electricity of various so of one sort or another in some way to create the images on the shroud. And this category, uh, believe it or not, uh, was quite important for me back uh, when I was studying the Shroud of Turin and coming to faith because it was under this uh, category of mechanism that I thought the atheists and the Shroud skeptics actually had at least one ordinary naturalistic hypothesis that worked in explaining, or at least I couldn't prove that it's improbable that they could explain all of the Shroud's minimal relevant features. It was on this basis that at the time of my conversion, I thought the mechanistic argument for the extraordinariness of the Shroud of Turin's image formation failed as an argument. Uh, so the good news for you guys here today is, well, I've I've come about uh, since those times, and I've been lucky enough to interact with actual pro-Shroud experts on both sides. Uh, sorry, uh, pro-Shroud experts as well as Shroud skeptical experts like Hugh Ferry, uh, and on the pro side, Bob Rucker and Giulio Fonte and um, Mark Antinacci. And I've asked them about the, um, what this mechanism that I thought worked. And I've since come to see, actually, no, I, I can falsify this. I can prove that this mechanism probably fails as well. It's improbable to explain all of the Shroud's minimal relevant features. So that's great. That's going to increase. Uh, when I finish off my Shroud argument for you guys, we're going to see it's higher than it was in my original 300-page book. It's going to be higher now because now I can make a successful mechanistic argument. Um, and that's going to raise my cumulative case probability uh, and confidence based on the Shroud of Turin. Bef let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Uh, let's just focus in on the electrostatic mechanisms. And the first thing I want to say, so I said this is an umbrella category. There are multiple theories that fit under, that utilize electrostatic mechanisms, okay? And the interesting here thing here is we have a first that's never happened before. Because um, if you kind of remember when we first started this, I mentioned there are three main types of mechanism or hypothesis to try and explain the Shroud's images. So the first are the ones that we first looked at, you know, ordinary artistic mechanisms, mechanisms that have to involve a human artist intelligence and uh, some artistic technique of some sort to create the images, uh, either in the medieval times in 1355 or any time before. The next type is the type we've been looking at for the last few a uh, few weeks in a row are ordinary naturalistic hypotheses. So these just posit a dead body or body and the laws of nature covered in the shroud and then the laws of nature, ordinary natural mechanisms that are currently well-established or well-known scientifically today operating on those things. There's no intelligent input. There's no human artist input or anything like that. So that's the second category that we've been looking at as I said the last few times, you know, gas diffusion, direct contact, uh, uh, bacterial hypothesis, all of that good stuff. But for the first time, we also employ this uh, electrostatic mechanisms also involve extraordinary mechanisms. So again, remember, that's what we're trying to do here. And 
I'm trying to prove that the image formation of the Shroud of Turin's minimal relevant features constitutes a G-belief authenticating event, or a religion authenticating event, for the truth of Christianity, via establishing Jesus' resurrection, for example, right? And right now we're in Criterion B, and we're first establishing that the mechanistic arguments, all the ordinary so by ordinary naturalistic mechanisms, I mean mechanisms that are well-established and well-known scientifically today, currently, um, by scientists today. That's all that means. So it, these are extraordinary mechanisms. In order to, one of the criteria is that the image formation has to be extraordinary in order to prove that it is a religion-authenticating event. So there are extraordinary mechanisms outside of our current understanding of science, and there's at least two of them that fit under this category that we're going to be looking at. Yeah, that's going to be the first time we're looking at extraordinary type mechanisms as well. But it's just, it's interesting that there are various versions of electrostatic mechanisms that fit all three types of hypotheses or mechanisms that can attempt to explain the shroud. So that'll be interesting for you guys. Okay, so with that said, so as I mentioned, under this umbrella category, we're going to be looking at about four to five um, different versions of this mechanism in action or hypotheses uh, that utilize electrostatic mechanisms of one sort or another. And the first place to start is where it all kind of started, um, is with the Curlian photography hypothesis. Um, so basically, during the 20th century, scientists became aware of a photographic phenomenon that would become known as Curlian photography. Uh, so this was first discovered in 1939 by a scientist named Simeon Curlian, obviously Curlian photography named after him. And he discovered accidentally that if an object on a photographic plate is connected to a high voltage source, then an, uh, an image is produced on the photographic plate. And this, this uh, technique, uh, the images that result from this technique are usually called a quote-unquote airglow image. Um, and it's produced using corona discharges and that sort of thing. Um, so that's the first mechanism here. And one thing just as a note that I should mention for clarification purposes, hey, wait a second, Curlian photography hmm, photography. I, I seem to remember you talking about an ordinary artistic mechanism in one of your earlier Shroud Solos uh, shows there, part 13, I think, or 14 maybe, um, where you're addressing the proto-photo hypothesis. You know, a medieval primitive photographic technique was used to create the Shroud of Trans images, and those failed. Well, why are you talking about Curlian photography there? Isn't this another form of proto photo hypothesis why like why are you breaking these up uh so to speak and the reason is because look at the underlying mechanism at play with the proto photo hypothesis you know of nicholas allen and shroud skeptics like that yes this is based on uh photography but the underlying mechanism is based on sunlight right it's reflecting sunlight or whatever through the lens and creating the image on the shroud so sunlight is the operative here in this case, with Curlian photography, I'm addressing that here because it's totally different. The underlying encoding mechanism here is electricity or electrostatic mechanisms. So that's why even though it has photography, um, 
you know, obviously it, curling photography is based on high voltage electricity. It's not based on sunlight. So that's why they're different, even though they're both photographic processes or involve photographic processes, so to speak. So, so that's the Curlian photography hypothesis. And just before we get into the other types of hypothesis, I just want to mention right here and right now, we're going to automatically dismiss this hypothesis as a failure. Why, why is this? No scientist in the entire world would believe that Curlian photography explains the shroud images today. There were some, some shroud experts, such as uh, John Evangelist Walsh, for example. He wrote a book in 1963 on the shroud in which he suggests maybe the images were produced somehow through the Curlian photo photography method. Um, so he's the only one to kind of suggest this. But since then, um, nobody's really gone for this. And it's been scientifically falsified, right? So bear in mind, 1963, that's before the 1978 STIRP investigation by those credible STIRP scientists who proved scientifically in secular peer-reviewed journals all of the properties of the shroud. And that uh, because of that, we have to give this Walsh guy a, a bit of a break. I mean, he was totally ignorant about the shroud's minimal relevant features and a lot of the properties there. So he didn't he didn't really have a fair chance. And that's why this Curlian photography is such a failure. Um, but I would I want to adopt. So while Walsh didn't suggest Curlian photography as an ordinary artistic mechanism, no, he he definitely believed that the Shroud of Turin belonged to Jesus and was miraculous proof of of Jesus' resurrection. So here's a quote from Johnny Walsh before I uh, uh, twist um, his use of Curlian photography into a, something of the Shroud skeptics. But this is Johnny Walsh in his own words. So quote unquote, only this much is certain. The Shroud of Turin is either the most awesome instructive relic of Jesus Christ in existence today, showing us in its dark simplicity how he appeared to men, or it is the most ingenious, most unbelievably clever products of the human mind in hand on record. It is one or the other. There is no middle ground. So you can kind of see see here that he's, he's a pro-Shroud proponent. He's a Christian. He believes in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And the, the implication here is that, look, there's no way a medieval artist could have created this thing. So I want to be fair to him in context, um, but just understand he's he's one of the ones back in 1963 who kind of proposed Curlian photography might have something to do with the origins of the shroud. And I'm adopting this and adapting it into an ordinary artistic hypothesis. Can Curlian photography, some medieval artist, have used Curlian photography to have created the shroud images. And what we're going to see here is we automatically dismiss this uh, hypothesis. I'm not even going to bother evaluating it going forward. Why? Let me give you a quick evaluation here and why it's just you're a fool if you believe this, right? Um, so essentially, look, from a historical plausibility perspective, let alone a scientific plausibility perspective, a medieval artist in the year 1355 or earlier impossible for them to use they didn't even know what photography was let alone curly the curlian photography mechanism and you have to know what it is in order to use it you can't just create 
the shroud images with Curlian photography by accident. It would take deliberate effort. But we know those photography wasn't discovered until the late 19th century, hundreds of years after a medieval artist. And the Curlian effect, photographic electric technique, wasn't discovered until 1939. Impossible. A medieval artist could not have used it or stumbled upon it by accident in creating um, the shroud images in any way. Um, they wouldn't have had the technology, the photographic plates. Um, we saw how it would have been impossible for um, any medieval artist to make the shroud into a, you know, photosensitive to electricity in that way as well. So it's just historically implausible right out of the gate. But what's more, it was scientific. There we have scientific experiments and photos of the results, as you're seeing up, you're gonna see up in your YouTube screens momentarily. Look, these methods utter utter failure. In the first place, they just create air globe blobs, indistinct blobs. It lacks the shroud's high resolution. You can't see anything. There's no, especially in the facial region where you have those fine details of the nose and elevation. It it nothing. I mean, take a look on your YouTube screens. The, the photo on the left provides the photographic negative images. Are those highly resolved images? No, they're just blobs of nothingness. Secondly, obviously, because it doesn't have highly resolved information, there's no topographical or three-dimensional data. The, there is no densities. You know, the nose, it, there's no nose, let alone a, a nose that's darker compared and correlated to the body to cloth distances. So there's no three-dimensional information. It just completely lacks any and all shading variations at all. And this is especially in the facial regions. It's especially bad. You don't believe me, Shroud Skeptics? Well, take a look up at your YouTube screen and that right, the photo on the right-hand side, that's the VP8 image analyzer uh, taken from this Curlian scientific experiment testing Curlian photography to recreate the Shroud Man's face. Utter, utter failure. That looks nothing like what we have with uh, the Shroud of Turin's VP8 or three-dimensional images that we get using the VP8 image analyzer. Utter, utter failure in those reasons. So this this is just scientifically impossible. It's scientifically falsified in the 100% degree. Curlian photography cannot account for the Shroud of Turin's images. Um, it suffers other problems too. For, for example, even Johnny Walsh here, uh, the proponent of Curlian photography at one, it, back in 1963, even he admit, said, look, it fails an additional feature of the Shroud because the images produced by this are brown. They're not the same color as the shroud. Remember, additional feature number three, I believe it is, offhand, um, minimal under minimal relevant feature number seven, the, the shroud's body images are yellow. They're not dark brown like this, or brown that like this mechanism produces. So yeah, th this is just an utter failure, 100% degree. It's impossible that Curlian photography as an ordinary artistic mechanism can account for the shroud's minimal relevant features in their entirety. And like I said, nobody, not even Johnny Walsh, would have proposed this as an ordinary artistic mechanism, as I showed from that quote. So this is just utter foolishness, you know, throw it in the garbage. But the reason I mention it here is because it has some historical importance, because it started back in 1963 with the Curlian photography hypothesis and, and 
thinking that maybe electricity does play some kind of role in the formation of the shroud's images. And that has spurred on other um, shroud experts to try and assess uh, how electricity might play a role. And that's where we're going to get into the next three to four versions or mechanism type mechanisms within the electrostatic category. So let's uh, turn to those right now. Okay, so in the first place, um, there are only four possible hypotheses left. There are two extraordinary hypotheses, uh, and there are two ordinary naturalistic hypotheses. So let's look at the two ordinary naturalistic versions first. Um, so, okay, so on this front, um, there are two, two main types of ordinary naturalistic hypothesis under the electrostatic models. So the first, um, and both, both of which posit, look, there's a vertically aligned electric field that envelops a human body that's covered or wrapped in the shroud. This is the fundamental basis that all of the electrost remaining electrostatic hypotheses posit in contradistinction to the Curlian photography ordinary artistic method that didn't posit a, a real body or something like that. Um, being covered in the shroud and then being enveloped by a vertically aligned electrical field. But the two main types of ordinary naturalistic versions here basically involve either you have a high energy technique or you have a low energy technique. Um, and this is this is kind of the distinction between high and low here refers to the amount of voltage specifically. So that's different to the amount of electric current being, right? So you have a high amount of voltage versus a low amount of voltage. In terms of the electric current, all such methods have to posit a low level of electric current. Otherwise, just think about it. It's scientifically impossible to form the shroud's images. Just think of superficiality, for example. I mean, this thing's gonna burn and destroy right through if there's a high level of electric current. Um, so obviously all electrostatic mechanisms have to posit a low level of electric current, but they differ between, well, do they have a high amount of voltage versus a low amount, relatively uh, speaking, a low amount of voltage. And that's the basis for the distinction between high energy and low energy electrostatic mechanisms. And on this front, so the Curlian photography method was a high voltage or a high energy alternative. It utilized things um, such as the corona discharge mechanism. And believe it or not, that is the next ordinary naturalistic mechanism that we're going to be looking at is the corona discharge hypothesis or method. Um, a, something like a corona discharge, maybe that created the shrouds images. And this is a high energy theory. So as I kind of mentioned before, the corona discharge hypothesis is uh, an ordinary naturalistic hypothesis that just like with Curlian photography, it postulates a high energy or high voltage electrical field uh, called a corona discharge. Uh, and it utilizes this corona discharge to explain how the shroud's body images became encoded on the shroud. Um, obviously, in terms of the bloodstains, it doesn't speculate that. It presumably, just as an ordinary naturalistic version, it just has to assume direct contact is how it got there. Um, but yeah, th this mechanism, uh, in terms of the corona discharge, this has been very popular among a lot of both pro-shroud experts and shroud skeptic experts alike. 
Um, so, and this really came into popularity. So obviously Walsh suggested in 1963 curling photography, but in 1980s, early 1980s is when the Corona discharge aspect became very popular as a theory. So it started with someone like Alan Mills, who first suggested the Corona discharge hypothesis in 1981. Uh, it also was then supported subsequently by the STIRP scientist, Dr. Alan Adler in 1982. Um, and this led up in 2005 to Dr. Oswald Schuerman, uh, also supporting this Corona discharge hypothesis. So this is obviously a very serious hypothesis that you need to grapple with seriously and, and sincerely consider its merits, pros and cons. But by far the most, most prominent expert on the pro shroud side who has advocated and done actual scientific experiments proving the veracity or falsity of this method is Dr. Giulio Fonte, who I was lucky enough to have on my Shroud Wars show not too long ago with Bob Rucker and Bob Seifgert. Um, and he was explaining his corona discharge hypothesis and that sort of thing. I'll play a clip from that momentarily. But yeah, basically, Giulio Fonte, he is by far the best, he's provided the best case for the corona discharge method hypothesis. Um, and he proposed it around 2008 to 2012. Um, and as we'll find out, he recently changed his mind, but we won't get, we won't get into that for the time being um, at this time. Um, we'll wait a second, but back in the, in 2008 to 2012, he was suggesting this Corona discharge hypothesis and, uh, Giulio Fonte, the Italian shroud expert, he speculates that, okay, perhaps maybe some kind of rare, uh, natural phenomenon like ball lightning, for example, may have created an enveloping, uh, Corona discharge or electric field around a body covered by the shroud and this somehow facilitated the formation of the shroud's body images by oxidizing the fibers. Um, in his own words, here's Fanti in, in his article, and again, I'll be publishing his article on my blog for free so you can read Julio in his own words here. Um, he says, quote unquote, it could seem that all is explained and that the Turin shroud body image was formed during an energy emission connected with corona discharge. Hence, the Turin Shroud body image can easily be explained by an intense source of energy, such as a ball of lightning. Now, it's important here to note that ball lightning, as uh, Bob Rucker mentioned in the show he did with Giulio Fonti and Mara Shroud Wars there, this is an extremely, extremely rare phenomenon. It's, it's something that's currently beyond our own knowledge, scientific knowledge as of late, it's, it's something we know scientifically and naturally occurs, but we know very, very little about it. Um, and on that basis, um, that could be relevant because remember how we're defining an ordinary naturalistic hypothesis. Well, a ball lightning is a natural, rare phenomenon. Does it qualify as a natural anomaly or not? And remember, we defined natural anomalies as extraordinary events. So there's some question here. Is this in fact an ordinary naturalistic hypothesis or is it an extraordinary hypothesis? And I think the answer is we, we can say it's both. We can treat it as both. And I'm going to treat it as both in, in for our purposes by way of assessment because the same criticisms apply whether it's extraordinary or whether it's an ordinary hypothesis. However, there are additional 
hurdles, as I'll mention in a moment from Giulio Fonte, that apply only to the ordinary naturalistic hypothesis because it employs something like ball lightning, which is such a rare phenomenon. So before I get so before I get to that, um, I just want to quote have um, Giulio Fonte from that show I was telling you about. Let's have him speak a little bit about the corona discharge um, mechanism here. So all right, let me bring it to him. And uh, uh, it was uh, uh, German physicist uh, uh, Oswald Scheuermann who detected uh, that, that the corona discharge uh, acts just in this way. And uh, a simple test can be done uh, by using uh, a plasma ball uh, that produces the corona discharge. Uh, in fact, uh, just the corona discharge could be the, one of the first agents that uh, pro uh, produced the, the, this very particular image of the shroud. Uh, corona discharge is a physical uh, effect uh, linked to uh, high, uh, very high uh, uh, electric fields. Electric fields of, uh, that can, for example, be produced in the plasma ball. In this experiment, I have put a, a linen cloth outside the glass sphere, and behind this uh, cloth, I put uh, my hand. Uh, and here we see the luminescence produced uh, outside the sphere. Uh, linked to the corona discharge. I made uh, some experiment uh, and obtained uh, just uh, the double superficiality of uh, the image. Uh, let's go uh, on. Uh, one what I can uh, ask uh, why and how. Uh, 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 intense uh, corona, uh, an intense electric field could have produced in the sepulcher uh, 2000 years ago. And uh, an answer, an interesting answer, I have found in studying the so called holy fire that uh, every year, uh, just tomorrow, uh, is uh, the holy site of the. Of the uh, uh, Orthodox uh, uh, Easter and uh, uh, every holy site of the, of the holy Easter in, uh, in the uh, edicule of the Saint Sepulchre, it forms uh, a particular uh, phenomenon called holy fire that is linked to uh, electrical fields. This was demonstrated by uh, uh, and, uh, a, a Russian scientist, Andrei Volkov, uh, who uh, detected uh, measurements in the sepulcher and affirmed that the air is electrically charged before the light appears. There is an electric discharge the only fire is accompanied by the appearance of plasma. 
and any particular plasma, I have tested it. I went in uh, 2019 in uh, the Holy Sepulchre and uh, I lighted my bond of uh, candles uh, with the Holy Fire and put under uh, my beard and uh, I have no pain because uh, this is a cold fire. This cold fire is very uh, particular and unexplained up to now. And uh, uh, this uh, was produced uh, by uh, some uh, some facts up uh, now unexplained that uh, happened when the Orthodox Patriarch uh, went into the edicule of the sepulchre and there formed some uh, fires, uh, some manifestation uh, linked, I think with the corona discharge. In that occasion, I have uh, uh, the possibility to make uh, some uh, tests. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna end it at this point. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to uh, include uh, the little bit about, so he explained what the corona discharge is in general and what he was originally thinking. Uh, we'll get into his experiments in a little bit when we get to the assessment. But I also wanted to include this a little bit about how he links it to the Holy Fire miracle in Jerusalem, which is an Easter to Orthodox miracle that takes place at Orthodox Easter every year. Um, I'm skeptical a little bit of it myself as a Protestant, but I haven't fully researched it, so my opinion doesn't matter, but um, it's more just a reflection of Protestant bias. But uh, I do think that there it is interesting. It is worth looking into. And Julio Fonti's mentioning he's done some scientific experiments to link it as a cold fire to the plasma-based corona discharge that he's um, advancing as a possible mechanism for forming the shroud's uh, body images here. So just wanted to include that holy fire linkage here. So with that said, uh, yeah, that's it for this little clip. Uh... Okay, so that's a uh, little bit from Julio there. Now, just to follow up on this, so, so obviously... Treating the corona discharge hypothesis as an ordinary naturalistic hypothesis does have issues um, that kind of make us wonder, well, maybe it could only work as an extraordinary hypothesis or a miraculous mechanism of some sort. For example, um, we know that the corona discharge is a high energy electric field mechanism. So this immediately creates the problem, the question, okay, well, how could this oxidize or color the, the body images or the fibrils that constitute the body images on the shroud without completely carbonizing them, right? This would just burn through all of these fibrils. Um, and this is not even to mention the fact that, look, the very occurrence of such a large electric field being created solely by ordinary natural means, that would be an extremely improbable or, or rare event in the first place. So yeah, it, it, based on some difficulties like these, it's it's this is the reason why Dr. Giulio Fonti, uh, the world's expert in the corona discharge hypothesis, being aware of this these kinds of difficulties, he even made note of this back in 2008 in his article. And he said, look, quote unquote, very rare natural phenomena such as ball lightning are perhaps connected uh, to a supernatural energy such as a corpse dematerialization that lets the electrons free in connection with Jesus' resurrection cannot be discussed on a scientific level because it is not reproducible.
And this kind of echoes what he was saying in the show with Bob Rucker and Bob Seifert, and Bob Seifert was backing him up. Look, the, the corona discharge can only go so far. And again, as I'll mention in a moment, this ultimately is why he's abandoned both the corona discharge as an ordinary naturalistic mechanism, abandoned the corona discharge mechanism, not only as an ordinary naturalistic mechanism, but also as a supernatural or extraordinary mechanism as well. Corona discharge on its own, whether extraordinary slash miraculous or just purely ordinary naturalistic, cannot do the trick. Again, we'll get to that in a moment. But yeah, that's what he's quoting here. So, so yeah, uh, speculating about such rare or unlikely natural phenomena, uh, things like ball lightning, which we don't know a heck of a lot about, um, it does create issues in terms of testing these theories scientifically in the lab. Um, although Giulio Fonti has uh, done the best set of scientific experiments, thoroughly experimenting on this, and I'll have him comment on that in a little bit. And you can see, you'll be able to see his results up on your YouTube screen. But at the end of the day, look, Giulio Fonte himself admits they could produce, quote unquote, unsatisfactory images in terms of the macroscopic features found on the Shroud of Turin. It utterly fails to create the highly resolved images that we see with the Shroud Man. They're not three-dimensional information, and it struggles to account for the vertically mapped wrapping distortions of the Shroud. And this is Giulio Fonte himself admits this, even back when he was thinking that this argument was an issue, right? And he, he has certain um, answers for that. So, for example, he might he would have posited motion blurs or the influence of ionic winds that kind of disturbed the images and prevented this. But subsequent to that, he has corrected for these things. And now he, again, he said, no, it's false. The, the corona discharge on its own, extraordinary or not, or ordinary, doesn't matter, can't account for these features. It's another failure. Again, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the assessment in more detail. But, um, it's just telling that so Giulio Fonti has since abandoned the corona discharge uh, method that we're talking about here. And um, Giulio Fonti himself, he says, look, the fine tuning required for a ball lightning induced corona discharge to account for and encode three dimensional information onto the shroud is virtually impossible scientifically to occur by chance alone. In the words of the Turin Shroud Center of Colorado, quote unquote, if the corona discharge produced the image on the shroud, it would be no less miraculous for its astounding fine-tuning than the image of the fall-through radiation hypothesis. So yeah, you, you can see that really the, the there is no ordinary naturalistic hypothesis. It really has to be extraordinary. There's real evidence for intelligent design. Designed by who? By humans? No, by God. That's who. These are issues even before we get to assessing the minimal relevant features on their own. Um, the main proponents here are admitting these basic evidence for God design in, in here and beyond just the capability of ordinary naturalistic hypotheses. Um, one other thing to mention lastly on this is, look, when, when it's corona discharge hypothesis is considered in the overall context of the external circumstances, uh, of utilizing a rare and unique event taking place at the right time, at the at the right place to create those remarkable body images of a religious figure that just happens to be Jesus and nobody else. This is way too ad hoc or way too coincidental if you're not positing any kind of divine involvement. And it 
picturing all of that happening by pure naturalistic chance alone and naturalistic mechanisms, absolutely ridiculous, my friends. Absolutely ridiculous. Like I said, that's why Fanti himself acknowledges that the corona discharge does not necessarily contradict the claim of the necessity for the involvement of supernatural causation mechanisms. Um, and he was also even open to combining the corona discharge. So kind of like Bob Rucker. Bob Rucker is like, yeah, we can use your insights from the corona discharge, but it's only a partial explanation. It's not the full story. You need something else, like a radiation hypothesis, to work in conjunction with it. Uh, you need multiple mechanisms, a combo theory. And Fonte himself is already kind of, kind of admitting this right from the get-go, even while he was a proponent back in 2008 and 2012 for this corona discharge mechanism. So that's what I just wanted to mention. Remember, there's the ordinary naturalistic version, the extraordinary version. The ordinary naturalistic version suffers some very big plausibility problems and ad hoc problems. Um, but... Um, even if you posit the extraordinary mechanism, we're going to see there's still problems with this method in terms of some of the macroscopic minimal relevant features that we're going to be assessing. Okay, so with that said, um, that this is just supposed to be what it is, uh, but I wanted to make that clear that, look, there is, with the corona discharge hypothesis, there's an ordinary naturalistic version of it, and there's an extraordinary version of it, and that's what most pro-shroud scientists go for, like Dr. Giulio Fonte, they're saying, no, this is a miraculous corona discharge hypothesis. So just be aware of that. Um, but for the most part, going forward in our assessment, all the criticisms I'm going to be making pretty much apply to both either the extraordinary or the ordinary kind. It doesn't matter which hypothesis you're looking at. One thing I want to raise here is, as I kind of hinted at, Giulio Fonte now has changed his mind. So he agrees that corona discharge perhaps plays a partial explanatory role in explaining the shrouds, the formation of the shroud's minimal relevant features in terms of its body and bloodstain images. Um, so now he's developed in, in uh, just recently, 29, between 2019 to 2022, a new hypothesis, an extraordinary hypothesis mechanism that he calls divine the divine photography hypothesis. So the shrouds images are a divine photo. And this is a, a mechanism, it's just a working hypothesis. So he hasn't even solidified anything yet. He hasn't been able to experiment. He doesn't have a lot of details and that sort of thing. Um, but I just want to mention that there is this second extraordinary mechanism known as divine the divine photography hypothesis. And this is extremely recent and that sort of thing. So Fanti has kind of proposed this. He says, well, look, divine photography um, came to me because he studied what's known as the Holy Fire of Jerusalem, which is an Eastern Orthodox alleged Easter miracle that takes place where this fire comes about. And he's, Giulio Fanti has studied this Holy Fire phenomenon scientifically and discovered it has certain properties. It's a cold fire. It's kind of like a corona discharge or something like that. And he thinks that maybe this played a role in forming photographic images that we see on the Shroud of Turin. So this is, his, in a nutshell, this is his his option of a mir miraculous option at the time of Jesus, uh, his resurrection. 
Phase one, Jesus's body fluids and burial spices impregnate the shroud and produce the quote unquote photosensitive material. Um, so obviously this isn't light sensitive, right? Because again, electrostatics or electricity is the fundamental underlying mechanism for this photographic process, this extraordinary photo method. Then a corona discharge comes in and provides the flash of energy in this case, instead of flash of light. And this is during the resurrection of Jesus. And this uh, reacted chemically with the body fluids that had uh, were put onto the shroud by being wrapped in G by over Jesus. And this produces amines in the linen fab fabric of the shroud. And then this leads to phase three. So remember um, in the gas diffusion models, Dr. Ray Rogers and the Maillard reaction, right? So amides react with, chemically react with, sugar or starch on the Shroud of Turin. And there were certain starch impurities that people assume, uh, okay, it had a superficial layer of sugar or starch on the Shroud, and that reacted chemically with these amines to produce a caramelization or a yellowing or an um, Maillard reaction, which is a known chemical reaction. Um, and this produced the, the chromophore, whereby we had the images um, were starting to be produced by this image through this chemical reaction. Then phase four, it takes time. Over time, the body images darken and become visible to the naked eye, thereby producing the shroud image, body images that we see today. This is akin to the develop, photo de development and fixation stages of um, photography under this divine photography process. So that's in a nutshell what he says his hypothesis is. Um, and again, he covers this in the show, uh, the Shroud Wars show. I'll let you guys go and listen to that. But you can see his PowerPoint slide up here with the phases. I'm just going to let Julio uh, give his uh, speech here. Discharge uh, called the corona discharge uh, is not uh, the only responsible of the body image. Probably uh, there were some other uh, facts that uh, helped to produce the, the image that uh, I can call divine uh, photography because uh, it was uh, a miracle. Uh, in the Holy Sepulchre uh, that involved many other uh, facts uh, linked to a, a, a photography uh, not, uh, not similar to uh, the photography that we, we, we intend now in this period. If you, if you want, I can... Uh, I can um, explain uh, at which point uh, my research is arrived on this argument. Yeah, please, yeah, please continue uh, on the divine photography thing and what you found so far. Do you want to continue with the divine photography? Yes. Okay. So uh, let me go. Uh, yeah, to find. So, uh, divine photography 
is a working hypothesis. I am working uh, by some years and uh, I think uh, to present uh, uh, some uh, initial uh, ideas in uh, the new book uh, that I am uh, writing with Bob Schiffker uh, about uh, the comparison of the Holy Shroud and uh, uh, the Holy File. Uh, in this uh, uh, idea, I think that uh, many uh, factors were involved in this and uh, uh, I have put in uh, evidence that the normal, the common materials that are necessary for a photograph photography, we need a sensitive material like the paper, uh, a flash uh, to the to uh, in, uh, impress the image on the sensitive material. We need a photographic reaction and uh, proper development and fixation of the image on the support. In reference to the divine photography, I think that the body fluid uh, of Jesus Christ, of the corpse of Jesus Christ, mixed with pieces species impregnated the holy shroud. Uh, the flesh uh, was uh, correlated to the flesh of energy uh, linked uh, to the resurrection for me uh, that contained also a part of corona discharge, electric discharge during the resurrection in the holy sepulchre that uh, reached react chemically with the body fluids producing amines in the linen fabrics of the holy shroud. Then uh, the sugars uh, perhaps contained in the species other material of the holy shroud that Jesus Christ uh, impregnated uh, with fluids produced uh, the chromophore CC in the Maillard reaction. And this was uh, the uh, photographic reaction that I think uh, was uh, probably involved uh, the body image of the shroud. The development uh, consisted in time, times of uh, weeks, uh, months, or perhaps years that uh, developed uh, the body image and uh, allowed uh, to uh, the double C uh, carbon uh, bond uh, to produce uh, the chromophore uh, that uh, is uh, responsible of the body image we see on the shroud. Awesome, thank you very much for, for sharing that. So, All right, so yeah, that's, I it. that's it on that front. So. Yeah, uh, back to my uh, other recording there. Now, because this is relatively new, there aren't really a lot of pro-shroud or shroud skeptical responses to this. And I asked people, nobody really had any critique, specific critiques in terms of the minimal relevant features. Even Hugh Ferry, uh, the infamous shroud skeptic who knows everything and has a critique for everyone and everything, 
even he uh, didn't really have much to offer about this mechanism, this divine photography mechanism. And that's mostly just because, well, people lack specific details. They need more specifics than what the working hypothesis is giving us. It's just too early to make an evalu proper evaluation. And because of that, this divine photography mechanism, I'm going to ignore from our evaluation um, because it's too early to judge. We need more details and specifics. Um, and then we need to have some more critical evaluation. Even surprisingly, even on the Shroud Science Group, I was hope Julio was kind of disappointed. Uh, he was hoping there would be more interaction when pe from people watching the show when he was on the show and hoping more people would kind of critique the theory. But even the expert, the pro Shroud experts themselves on the Shroud Science Group, they weren't taking the bait uh, or Shroud skeptics like Hugh Ferry. They weren't kind of wanting to get into the details yet. It's too early. Um, so because of that, um, I don't have any ex Shroud experts to quote or to base my opinion on. Um, I think it's too early at this time. I'm going to refrain from doing an evaluation based on my MRF approach of the divine photography hypothesis. In the first place, number one, if it if it's true, great. If you're a Christian, this proves the resurrection of Christ. This proves a supernatural, miraculous, or miracle, or an extraordinary event, as, as per my G-belief authenticating event criteria. And that's all we need. So if, Julio, if divine photography is true, that proves that the shroud image formation was extraordinary or miraculous or supernatural, whatever you want to say. And that's great. Bada boom, bada bing. Christianity's true. So, um, I'm happy. I'm happy for this to be true. That said, as a layman without any scholarly backup at all, I do have certain questions or potential issues with this theory that I would like to see addressed. So, you know, number one, I'd like to know, does, would the corona discharge produce these amines in, in this way? I'm, I'm assuming it would. Um, however, there's an ad hoc component here that I'm... We're assuming with the Maillard reaction... Remember, I critiqued Ray Rogers making an ad hoc assumption that just because we discovered some starch impurities, um, that doesn't mean it had a, an entire superficial layer that covered the entire surface of the shroud um, in terms of starch or sugars. That's just a non-proven assumption on their part. So that adds an element of ad hocness. And I would like to see that um, addressed because that was one of my critiques. When we, uh, when we assess the Maillard reaction proper under the gas diffusion models in a prior Shroud solo show. Additionally, there, there's another problem here. Um, I, I have questions. How would it account for the body image uniformity? Uh, what about the vertically mapped wrapping distortions? Wouldn't it still suffer the same problems that um that the corona discharge proper method had with those electric field lines and that sort of thing um you know in terms of those distortions also another major problem is look this theory postulates in order to work it has to inherently posit it the shroud being quote-unquote impregnated with body fluids and spices but remember our minimal relevant feature number seven the additional features one of the additional features i think think it's number four but again i'll look it up but um in my excel sheet but there's no detectable body fluids associated with a human body in life or death or spices burial or otherwise discovered on the shroud at all so 
how do you this makes this hypothesis very unlikely if it was impregnated we would be able to find some kind of remnants even if most of it oxidized or decomposed over the centuries we would still have some remnant traces in detectable quantities of these biochemicals and spices so why is it not there um, I think that this could be a potential problem that I'd like to see Giulio Fonte address if he's going to be utilizing this this divine photography hypothesis. This seems like a, a big problem for it. Um, but yeah, may, maybe I just don't know. As a, these are just questions that I have as a layman. Um, they're not based on what credible shroud experts have said for or against it. Um, but yeah, I, I think these are some interesting questions to ask and to hopefully have addressed in time as we come to know more and more of the specifics of this working hypothesis of Fonte that he's adopted as of April 2022 at the at the uh, latest. So yeah, I think I think that's it. So yeah, I think that's it in terms of that. So let's turn to our final ordinary naturalistic hypothesis. And this was the one that I found the most problematic. This was the one back in 2018 when I was converting and uh, doing my research just prior to my conversion um, on May 5th, 2018 to Christianity, this was the one that I thought atheists and skeptics had a success. Um, and this is the ordinary naturalistic hypothesis known as the electric charge separation hypothesis or mechanism. This was first proposed by doc a couple of shroud skeptics, doctors Daniel S. Spicer and E.T. Totten at the St. Louis Conference in 2014. So it was proposed around 2014 and 2015. Um, and it, this is, by contrast to the corona discharge, this is a low-energy theory or a low-voltage electric sta electrical static theory. And essentially uh, what uh, Spicer and Totten say is they say, well, look, um, we employ a vertical, vertical low energy or low voltage electric field surrounding the body uh, to focus the diffusion of various molecular gas va or vapors in such a way as to create the shroud's body images. Um, so um, this is what they call the electric charge separation hypothesis. And in order to produce this low energy electric field, um, the authors suggest four different possible sources. Um, so either an ambient atmospheric electrical field pointed downward, uh, so just in the environment already. Secondly, or two, ambient fields found during a light, lightning storm pointing downwards. Three, upward electric fields produced by radon gas released in a small enclosed area, such as a tomb complex in Jerusalem uh, during an earthquake. Um, and this is going to be relevant when we look at the radiation hypothesis. There's been some work um, by uh, people like Bob uh, Villarreal, for example, have, have taken this option, this radon gas option, or others have posited radon gas forming during an earthquake in Jerusalem uh, to form a sort of a radiation hypothesis. But anyways, in this case, it's, it's uh, creating an electric field and under this hypothesis, an upward one. And then finally, and or four, piezoelectric fields due to an earthquake with no a priori direction. So these are the four sources um, that uh, they provide options to provide a vertical, strictly vertical electric field. And this works in conjunction with gas diffusion and focuses the gas 
onto the cloth in a strictly vertical direction. So it's different. Remember in gas diffusion uh, proper, when we evaluated that is the randomization, right? These gases just disperse randomly. So you get body sides, you get a blurring effect and lack high resolution. Well, in this case, under the electric charge separation mechanism, they're saying, well, no, the gases are going to be focused and directed by the vertical, vertically aligned electric field. And that's why they don't just dissipate in all directions equally, um, according to their theory. Um, so, yeah, you know, once they have the existence of this vertically lo aligned low energy electric field, then the theory goes on to postulate that, well, the body... Uh, the dead body was acting as a conductor. It was covered in sweat and body fluids and that sort of thing. And this contained, the sweat contained um, an oxidizing chemical agent of some kind, such as urea, uh, or as Dr. Alan Adler suggested, calcium fluoride, um, and or perhaps even um, residual pectins, or maybe something, those amines, um, or maybe something uh, related to a Maillard reaction. Uh, they're open. The Maillard reaction seems to be the best chemical agent or process for coloring the shrouded images. But it's important to note that, look, they don't limit themselves to the Maillard reaction. May, they're open to, well, maybe it's the Maillard reaction as the chemical pr reacting process, or maybe there's some other process reacting with these body fluids or something like that. So they don't limit themselves. Um, so obviously the linen cloth wrapping the body, this acts as the insulator, right? Um, so this creates the polarized diffused gas molecules. Um, and those are then concentrated on the body in such a way that the molecules would diffuse vertically onto the cloth in the precise geometrical or three-dimensional form of the underlying body and are in the case of the back dorsal image, the overlying body. Um, over time, these molecules would subsequently oxidize the linen fibrils, thus encoding the shroud's body image and the coloring that we observe today. Um, so just a couple, uh, so that's what their theory is in a nutshell here. Just a couple important notes to make in terms of major differences between this hypothesis and the other hypothesis, hypotheses like corona discharge that we've been looking at. So make a note, right? This is the this is a low energy electrostatic mechanism. It's the only low energy form version of the electrostatic hypotheses. Every other mechanism, the um, uh, Curlian photography as an ordinary artistic mechanism, and the Corona discharge, both as an ordinary naturalistic and an extraordinary version, and the divine photography hypothesis are all high energy mechanisms electrostatic mechanisms. So this one is quite by itself. It's the only low energy high static mechanism. So that's a fundamental difference. And well, why why does that matter? Why why does one prefer low energy to high energy? Like what's going on going on here? And the reason is, well look, with, with a high energy electric field, obviously that's going to be capable of accounting for the oxidization of the linen fibrils, the coloring or a degradation of the fibril, cellulose fibrils independently. Uh, it doesn't need to combine with a chemical agent like a gas diffusion mechanism or involve a chemical reaction at all. It can independently, the electric field on its own, is capable of coloring the linen fibrils. 
and doing so uh, faster and that sort of thing. Sorry, the mechanism doesn't need to be prolonged and operating long time. It's in a flash. It, corona discharge, boom, does its thing. It's gone in nanoseconds, as Giulio Fonti said. Um, whereas this might take seconds. It might take a little bit longer amount of time. And it also has to work in conjunction with other mechanisms like a gas diffusion mechanism to get the chemical needed uh, coloring chemicals or reactive chemicals from the body to the cloth. Um, so that so that's kind of a difference why the high energy and low energy makes a difference because obviously a low energy model is going to require the addition of additional ordinary naturalistic mechanisms like direct contact and gas diffusion in order to get some kind of chemical agent to oxidize the linen the, while the field is operating and just directs that gases. Um, so that's so that's an interesting factor, right? It requires a combination of factors and mechanisms working in conjunction with each other in order to form the images. And that could lead to uh, it being ad hoc in some way, perhaps, unless these mechanisms are all conducive to each other. Not to mention, what about the blood stains? Again, can't explain the blood stains. It's it's the only way as an ordinary naturalistic mechanism is to rely on direct contact. We saw in part 13 on direct contact mechanisms that those are utter, utter failures and they don't work. So this is a failure right there just based on the blood stains. But again, this is focused on the body images primarily. So um, yeah, I think um, this kind of makes this different. So this doesn't come in an extraordinary counterpart. It's strictly an ordinary naturalistic hypothesis. And these shroud skeptics, Spicer and Totten themselves, say this themselves in their um, paper, which I'll link to on my blog. They say this is a strictly naturalistic proposal. And, it, and they say, quote unquote, the electric charge separation mechanism depends on a completely natural mechanism. It does not, and they repeat, does not conflate the image formation mechanism with the resurrection of Jesus, nor should it. Um, so this is uh, bringing a smile of glee and delight to the atheists and skeptics on, on this, who are you know, quite desperate at this point because everything they've thrown at the shroud has just failed so far and failed pathetically. Um, so they're probably quite desperate and praying to goodness sakes, please, Spicer, we, we need something to work. We need one ordinary naturalistic mechanism to blow this shroud argument out of the water. Um, well, they claim to deliver that. Um, let's find out if that's true or not. Hint, we're going to find out it's not. Okay, so so let's... That's it for in terms of what these um, mechanisms are. Uh, in terms of the minimal relevant features, uh, it's important to note, look, in terms of my minimal relevant feature approach, we only have to assess two theories here. We only have to assess the two and falsify as improbable the two ordinary naturalistic versions, the ordinary naturalistic corona discharge hypothesis and the ordinary naturalistic uh, electric charge separation model. We don't have to prove either of the extraordinary mechanisms false or true in order to prove our case under the minimal relevant feature, right? So remember, or the Curlian photography as the ordinary artistic mechanism we've already disproven out of the gate, so it's been eliminated as an option. Um, the extraordinary divine photography hypothesis. 
We don't have, it's too soon to be able to make an assessment of that based on the minimal relevant features, but who cares? If it's true, great, grand, and groovy. That proves Christianity's true. If it's not true, who cares? We have other supernatural mechanisms to prove Christianity in terms of how the shroud was made, so it doesn't matter. That's eliminated from our assessment. Finally, what about the extraordinary version of the corona discharge hypothesis? If true, great, grand, and groovy. We've proven Christianity is true because this is a miraculous event. Who cares? Um, if, it's, if it turns out to be false, same deal with the divine photography. Doesn't matter. And one thing that's the element here, when we're evaluating the ordinary naturalistic version of the corona discharge hypothesis and falsifying that, showing that to be improbable, that also falsifies, uh, to some extent, the extraordinary or supernatural version of the corona discharge hypothesis too, because the same criticisms apply. And that's just based on the fact of what the corona, extraordinary corona discharge hypothesis of Giulio Fonte entails, because it, in, it entails certain physically consistent operations or mechanisms and causes and effects. And on that basis, we can evaluate those elements under the laws of physics and scientifically and falsify that. You know, obviously, if you want to modify and make up a new extraordinary corona discharge hypothesis that just has no physically consistent problematic aspects or, the, you know, there's some kind of weird thing, great, grand and groovy. Go, go ahead and do that. Again, it proves Christianity. I don't need to uh, verify or falsify any extraordinary hypotheses. In order to prove that the Shroud's image formation is extraordinary, I just need to falsify, i.e. show that the ordinary naturalistic and artistic mechanisms that we currently are aware of um, as ordinary mechanisms are falsified or improbable to be true. And that establishes the extraordinariness. I don't need to prove how or which extraordinary mechanism explains the Shroud. If you want to, that's great. A lot of shroud experts try to prove that a radiation hypothesis is true or that it's the best explanation or Giulio Fonte want, wants to perhaps argue and try to prove that his divine photography is true or something. Great, grand and groovy. I, I appreciate those types of arguments, but it's not necessary for a minimal relevant features approach. I don't have to prove how the shroud was formed extraordinarily. I just have to prove that it wasn't formed ordinarily through known artistic and naturalistic mechanisms and that in conjunction with my other the fulfillment of the of the other criteria uh, based on the shroud evidence from my g belief authenticating event criteria proves that this is in fact a god designed event to authenticate the truth of the christian religion via authenticating jesus resurrection so that's all that I need to do there. So really, we just have to assess uh, two ordinary naturalistic ones, the electric charge separation and the ordinary naturalistic corona discharge hypothesis. And that's what we'll be primarily doing. But just be aware that some of the same criticisms of the ordinary naturalistic corona discharge do in fact also falsify the extraordinary version of the corona discharge as it's been outlined by Dr. Giulio Fonti, for example. And like I said, even he himself has admitted this. Okay, so let's get into the assessment and start with these minimal relevant features. Um, and we'll start with number one. So this is minimal relevant feature number one is based on the fact that the shroud has photographic negative images or quasi-negative images, whatever helps the shroud skeptic. 
Uh, there's image diffuseness, and there is high resolution. The images are highly resolved. So how do our mechanisms fare on that front?